Hello, and welcome to the Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we carefully dissect the movie Alien one minute at a time. I'm Mitch Bryan. And I'm John Engel. And today we are talking about minute number 54, which begins with Dallas telling everyone that Kane is going to have to go into quarantine and ends with Ripley asking Kane, what's the last thing you remember? And we're joined again today by Tasha Robinson. How are you doing today, Tasha? I'm doing terrific. How are you? Doing great. Ready to talk about this minute as we're still in the middle of this conversation around the breakfast nook. We've just had Dallas Barkett Parker and everyone else, I guess, to knock it off. So Dallas is a little on edge. They're going to talk here about the quarantine situation. What do we make of this? Parker's brought this up before and to no response, but now... Are we talking about freezing the alien finally? Are we talking about freezing Kane finally? Uh, no, I don't think so at all. I think he's talking about when they get back, they're going to have to quarantine him. And uh, Ripley says, yeah, and so will we. They're not talking about, I mean, it's already clear that they're going back into, <laughs> back into the old freezerinos, as it were. Mm -hmm. But I think here he's talking about the consequences. And I think the reason, one of the reasons that he's so... I, petulant is putting him down, but like so like resentful and unsettled in the scene is he's thinking about like what's going to have to be done when they get back and the questions that he's going to face. You know, he's a captain who's coming back with uh, <laughs> they have the first alien contact and that first alien contacts like put one of his crew members in a coma and then went scuttling around his ship doing God knows what. I, and now, you know, they're facing, in addition to what the what else we learn in the scene that they're facing, they're facing potentially being, like, locked up for who knows how long while scientists examine them. I, th I think that's what he's talking about here. It makes me want to ask the question, though. When they talk about freezing Kane, when Parker's suggesting this, what is he talking about? Is he not talking about going into cryosleep? Is this another kind of freezing that I'm not aware of? No, I think they're talking about different things. I think mm. he's saying, because remember at this at this point, you know, this is the minute where Kane wakes up. At the beginning, at the previous minute, he's saying he's unconscious, we should just stick him in the freezer. And nobody responds because they've already had that argument. But I think when Dallas says he's going to have to go into quarantine, and so will we, like we already know that they're going back into the freezers. I don't think that's what they're talking about. I think he's talking about... Uh, just how unpleasant everything is going to be from here on in. And I think he's feeling a certain amount, not just of guilt, but like resentment at what the future holds. And just to make matters worse, Lambert walks in. <laughs> oh, Lambert. With such a good line, too. Like, she doesn't even try to put a smile on it. No, not at all. Oh. See, this is where I just wanted her to have that one moment, but no, we got to get her, like you said earlier, Tasha, She's got the bad news in her back pocket. She's bringing it in with her. That's what we get out of Lambert, I guess. I guess it's always, there might as well just be a little tiny black cloud following her around everywhere <laughs> she goes. I, I feel sorry for it. But here she is. She's got this bad news again. And everyone responds to this. Even Brett responds to this one. But Dallas doesn't even let her get through her explanation. He cuts her off and makes her give him the short version, which is... Poor Lambert. I mean, it's bad enough she's got to give him this news. He's he's being really. I think I think petulant is not 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 a bad way to describe the state that he's in. At the same time, when she's doing the according to my calculations, she's stalling. She knows the news. She knows how they're going to react to it. She's just she's dithering, and he's like, "Just tell us." 
I mean, I, I sympathize with that. Like, get over with. Get it over with. Yeah. Which she leads with, how about a little something to lower your spirits? <laughs> like, don't don't say that and then keep everybody dangling. Like, everybody's going to be imagining <laughs> the worst. Surely there is a worst that's worse than 10 months. 11 months. <laughs> yeah. See, that's this one goes to 11. It's one more. <laughs> it's one more month's. Explain this to me, because this is something I've always wondered about. And I think it actually, I think uh, Alan Dean Foster tried to do something with it in the book, but it's its kind of unclear to me here. Everybody's really bummed that it's 10 months to Earth. Why? I mean, they're going to spend it all asleep. Like, why, why would five months in the thing be different from 10 months in the thing? Well, it, you know, I mean, I haven't thought about this until recently, but we do have a, a movie now that gets very deep into the idea of of how long space travel, how much time it takes out of your life. And then with Interstellar, with Christopher Nolan's Interstellar, you get this. So it's so much about how much time passes, even though you don't feel it when you're traveling in space. Your family ages away as uh, you don't get to see them for years at a time. I mean, if they've been out, we don't know how long they've been out at this point. And 10 months means 10 more months of your kids aging. We don't, you know, we don't know anything about their family, but you can imagine that no matter what, they, they must have somebody they love back at home. 10 months more away from them, even if you're sleeping the entire time, you're going to feel it on that end. You're going to definitely want to get back to them as soon as possible. I think my question is, how long did they think it was going to be? How long was it going to be the first, you know, had they not been awakened? Obviously, it wouldn't have made any difference to them then. So I, I, I can see your point there for sure. I always read it as they thought there was a possibility they wouldn't have to go back into cryosleep. And I don't get the impression that cryosleep is anything that's that comfortable, given the attitude when Kane comes out at the beginning. So I always thought that was it. I, I, whether it's, I agree, whether it's 10 months or 11 months or 15 months, I think the idea of them having to go back into sleep is what, what's really bumming them out. Maybe I think in the screenplay, but definitely in the illustrated story, the comic book version, they talk a lot more. You get a little bit more of the inside of Kane's head when he wakes up. And it's very specific about how hard it is to wake up and how you don't feel right for long periods of time. And the sleep is not something to be taken lightly. What does Alan Dean Foster do with it? Oh, I, I just, I remember him. I seem to remember him uh, just sticking in some kind of like throwaway line about uh, how unpleasant the whole hypersleep experience is. And then by the time of Prometheus, you know, you find out that people in hypersleep are dreaming the whole time. So it is possible that they actually will feel the passage of time in some way, you know, that they're, they're aware that they're being like held under in an unnatural sleep, you know, that it actually is unpleasant besides the waking up. But I've just always found this to be like a really interesting moment because you really don't know exactly what they're reacting to. And maybe you don't need to know what they're reacting to. You, all you need to know is like they've they're really disappointed, and the fact that it's it affects all of them like so viscerally and visibly, I guess, like gives you a sense that something's really wrong here. I just I, it makes me curious because we we feel like we kind of know a lot of the details about their lives just from inference. And they're just, for me, there's just not quite enough detail to get the inference here. Well, the other thing that's weird about this scene for me, because it starts so strong, and then once we get past knock it off, I think the scene gets a little wobbly because there's that question. And then this whole business of Ash ringing in 
and once again saying, I can't tell you what's happening down here. You've got to come down and see it, which he's done once before. He's just such a douche. It's completely ridiculous. He says, technically, literally, it would be much easier if you just came down here, which is ridiculous. All he had to say was, Kane woke up. There you go. That's not a complicated thing to explain at all. And it's, again, I'll talk about the illustrated story and the script. But in the illustrated story, as a visual representation of how this goes down, he calls them. They say, what's up? And he said, he says, make another place for dinner. And the door opens and Kane walks in with a big waving hand. You can imagine it. It's a cartoon. <laughs> it's like, hey, y'all, I'm here for dinner. And they jump right into dinner. So you don't even get that scene in the infirmary or anything that we're going to get in the next minute. But uh, I think that's interesting. But why do they keep so Ridley Scott and everyone and the, as they're shooting this movie, they keep making <laughs> Ash this like mysterious. He just can't explain anything. You just have to come see it all the time. It's completely ridiculous. And they might have they might have taken it a little too far here. I don't know. I think it's a weak beat. It's a double beat right down to the fact that you have the mystery and then you cut to another shot of Kane. First time you cut to him, he's asleep, but the face hugger's gone. Now we cut to him and he's he's up. And maybe maybe it's trying for some kind of rhythm or symmetry, but it just feels like a double beat to me. It feels like there there must have been a better way to get us into that scene rather than employ the exact same strategy twice in a row within 10 minutes. Well, I, th- I mean, I, f- I feel what they're really trying to do here is give you just like one second to imagine the worst. You know, in both cases, something's happened and you're immediately like, well, what's happened? And you're not really given a whole lot of time to contemplate it. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's what's what's really going on here is kind of the horror movie. You know, how bad could it possibly be? Oh, it's better than I thought. And that happens in both cases. But uh, yeah, twice in a row, it's like, well, you know, maybe maybe there's a reason Ash is uh, glitching and repeating himself maybe he's maybe he's in the matrix and things are going wrong I don't know. We programming could, we, uh that's that's usually our go-to excuse is he's glitchy like when he does these things i mean i can think of a better way i i totally agree with you tasha actually now that you say that that makes perfect sense i can think of a couple of different ways right now how they could have done it better than that i think one for instance he could have called and said you need to come down here cut to them walking down the corridor the the what we call the smack chamber where where Lambert smacks Ridley in the uh, in the director's cut, but what we know is uh, well established the outside of the infirmary, and we could have had that moment there where we're like, "What are they going to see when they get in there?" Open the door, and he's sitting there, and then we get our moment. I, I just I, we don't do a lot of rewriting of the movie as we as we watch this uh, or as we go through these minutes, but I just feel like this is. I agree with Mitch that this is kind of clumsy that we're getting this beat again with the call. I do think it's notable that he does step right over Ripley, too. She's the one that answers the phone, and he addresses Dallas. I mean, I'm not even sure how he knows Dallas is within earshot, but he just steps right over Ripley and doesn't care at all that she's the one that answered. But that's just, once again, obviously he doesn't respect her or care what she has to say about anything anyway. I think they should have uh, taken a hint from the photo from your photo book but like cartooned it up even more and he should have just ash should have been on the phone just like yes he's coming to dinner <laughs> but no i i mean i think the the other thing you can kind of take away if you if you want to and if you're looking for it is that ash is continually experimenting on them it's not it's not that he doesn't really know human mores and 
doesn't realize that he's like alienating them when he does, does these things. I think he's really experimenting on them. Mm. And he, he gives them like minimal data and then sits back and watches in that cold alien way he has to see what they'll do. And I, like, I think one of the most interesting things, we'll get into this a little more in the next minute, but one of the most interesting things in Ian Holmes' uh, performance is when you watch the movie a second time, you can see like how he's processing his character like every time we see him. And like, I, I think that there is a degree to which his, uh, his little something has happened. I'm not going to tell you what thing is just like another facet of like what he's doing with the character in terms of being this, you know, you know cold and ungiving uh, individual who is like in no way interested in comforting them. I think it would have been, it would have been interesting at least to hang a lantern on it here. If you're going to do the beat again, maybe somebody should have gotten frustrated about it. I think that would have been nice, but you definitely have a, a really good point there. there. There's so much that seemed of calculating, like computing cutaways you get of him where it, knowing that he's an Android on that second viewing, like you said, you think this guy's computing something here. This guy is collating as he says, something here so i think that's definitely a, a good reading of why he did this yet again to them i just always come back to like lost i really enjoyed lost the, the tv series but there's so many times where they were like a group of the islanders were about to hike from one side of the the island to the other and somebody would say to Locke, what's happened or why are we doing this and he's like i don't have time to explain <laughs> and then you know, cut to them arriving <laughs> on the other side of the island four hours later, during which four hours he presumably said, I don't have time to explain, like, roughly every six <laughs> seconds. Like, that's what Ash is doing here. I don't have time to tell you what's going on. I only have time to draw out the moment in which I don't tell you what's going on. By continuing to ramble, I could have said it in two words a moment ago. Like, he, he could do that for five minutes. It's so exasperating. Yeah. And then cutting to that shot of Kane, just like before, which is just a tiny bit ahead of the audience. So we're wondering what it is. Boom, we get this shot of him. We can see that he's up and around. But it's fancy footwork because we did miss the moment when they spotted him or the first things that they said when they saw he was okay. And it's I think it's a trick that, Ridley Scott does again and again through the movie to keep us slightly disoriented. Oh yeah, but it's such a beautiful parallel to that the first shot of the crew when they wake up and the fact that we focus on Kane's face first. Oh yeah. And here we are back with him looking just as groggy and disoriented and coming out of sleep. And this is the movie then we're going to see that again in the next moment. This is the movie resetting itself to the beginning and it's it's Ridley Scott really subtly keying us to everything's fine now like the crisis is over it's like he's awake he's fine happily ever after we're back to the beginning of the movie before anything went wrong you're safe and if it were a play and you had a curtain the curtain would have probably come right before we saw Kane right so you go the second half starts the curtain opens and there's Kane just like at the very beginning (laughs) yeah just like the top of act one yeah yeah, I, I love the fact that we reset to the top of Act One with this shot. It's just, it's it's so exciting to me, like what he's doing here. All right. Well, does anybody have anything else for that one? Oh gosh, um, I think it's really. Uh, I'm sure you've talked about like the color scheme in the movie, but like this shot was the first shot of this set of moments 
where it was really emphasized to me like how white everything is, how white the med bay is. Most of them are wearing white. Uh, Kane is wearing white. And you, you kind of get that, like there's very little in uh, Alien of the kind of slick, glossy 2001 The Space Odyssey version of the future where in so many cinematic versions of the future, like everything is sparkling and pristine and pure and clean and everybody wears white. And this is one of the few shots, I think, where you really get that feeling of like, this is a clean and like nice antiseptic, like sterile friendly future, as opposed to a, a dark, gritty, drippy, grubby future, which you get in so many other shots inside the Nostromo. Yeah. In fact, you get three scenes in a row that are white. You get that breakfast nook, then you're going to get this, and then you're going to get the dining room, all of which are clean, white, antiseptic, and probably show red better than any other backdrop. Oh, yeah. That's a really, really good point. <laughs> yeah, we really are setting up for some uh, for some visual contrast here. But yeah, I, like whenever you get one of these like brightly lit, like brightly lit sparkling moments it's just again it's kind of a cue to like relax like the future isn't as, as scary and as bad as it looks on the commentary track uh ridley scott was talking specifically in this scene about the sound mix and how much you have to listen to alien and like a really good sound system to appreciate like the fact that you're always hearing the rumbling of the engines really really low in the mix but in scenes in the med bay in particular you're also hearing like the sounds of air conditioning and like other, like the sound mix is just all of these like little subtle ongoing, the sounds of a working ship at all times. And, and he apparently like particularly emphasized it just for this shot in the midday. All right. Well, that's going to do it for minute number 54. Uh, tune in tomorrow for minute number 55. Tasha, tell us again where we can find you online. Uh, you can find me writing about film at TheVerge.com. You can hear me talking about film at the Next Picture Show podcast, uh, which you can find on Tumblr, on Facebook, and on Twitter at Next Picture Pod. You can find me personally on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. And we are at AlienMinute.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at AlienMinutePod, or go to Instagram and find us at AlienMinutePodcast. Uh, please head over to iTunes and subscribe to us there. Leave us a review if you'd like. And uh, you can also go to our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Alien Minute. Uh, we'll see you tomorrow for minute number 55.